everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. goblins and ghouls, welcome to my podcast, History and Mystery, a place where we discover the fun of historical location and the mystery and hauntings that live on within its walls and its grounds. My name is Ariel, and today I'm going to start off my show a little differently. First off, I just wanted to remind everyone to check out my Facebook and Twitter page under History and Mystery, and also follow me on my Instagram pages at History underscore Mystery 13 to keep up with all the latest from my show. I also have links to my website and Patreon pages down below so be sure to check out those as well. Any support for the show would be greatly appreciated. Here is how I'm going to start my show today, and that is with some real talk for a few minutes. First of all, I'm recovering from a horrendous sinus infection that I had for two weeks, and I just now am on day three of the antibiotics, and I sound so much better than before. I might still sound stuffy, but uh, trust me, when I was barely alive last week, I sounded like death, and today is so much better, so... Thank you, antibiotics. Second of all, I hope that my podcast doesn't sound too echoey because I've been so sick. I set myself up on the couch today, which is in a different location than I usually have my microphone. So it shouldn't sound echoey. I hope I have everything closed off in a room. But if it does sound a little bit echoey, that's why. I'm going to try to tweak it, but I don't know if there's much I can do. And uh, sitting on a hard office chair for five hours every day recording this does not sound fun when you're getting over a really bad sinus infection. And we get to the main part of why I'm starting this episode off a little differently. When I started my show, I knew that I would eventually get some negative reviews. It's just the life of anyone trying to do a podcast. What I didn't expect is that to be made fun of for something that I have no control over. I'm not going to read the comment aloud, but if you wanted to find it, you can find it on an iTunes review under my show. But basically, they did credit that I put in a lot of work to my show and the history elements, but they basically said that I am not a natural reader and it is embarrassing to hear me stumble over what they called quote quote simple words that I should already know because, you know, I'm an adult, apparently. And they also said that the words do not flow naturally from my lips. Well, they would be right about at least one thing because, you see, I am an adult who suffers from dyslexia. For those of you who don't know, dyslexia is a learning disability that is so much more than just getting letters backwards sometimes. Sometimes. 
It is different for every person. Some can hide it better than others, and it's not everyone struggles with it in the exact same way, which is why it's such a broad term. For me, personally, it makes me so that I have a hard time reading aloud very well. It makes it so that I have an extremely hard time spelling. What people call simple math is way hard for me. Like, I don't get it at all. And I also struggle with social cues sometimes. I also have a processing disorder, which makes me kind of stumble over words sometimes and sound like I'm trailing off when I'm in the middle of talking, even when I'm not reading. So that's not new. That's just me being me. Dyslexia is something that I have to deal with and struggle with every day of my life. It never goes away. I have been bullied as a child and even as an adult for not knowing how to spell or struggle with math. But just because dyslexia is really hard, it is also my biggest strength. I'm about to name a bunch of people who had dyslexia and it might actually surprise you because after all, one in five people are diagnosed with dyslexia every year. I'm sure you've heard of some of these people like Leonardo da Vinci, Walt Disney, Jim Carrey, Albert Einstein, Sally Gardner, Whoopi Goldberg, Keira Knightley, John Legend, Jamie Oliver, Steven Spielberg, Picasso, Tom Cruise, Magic Johnson, Henry Winkler, who also is known as the Fonz on Happy Days, and he also writes children's books about a young boy with dyslexia, and they are called Hank Zipper. Trust me, I could go on and on with this list, but my point is just because someone might struggle with things that are easy for you does not give you the right to make fun or bully someone for it. Honestly, for me, I think the most challenging thing about dyslexia is it is truly invisible. There's no way to know if somebody has it until they make a mistake, and then it's like everybody bullies you for it. And in the end, after usually I explain why I made a mistake, everyone gives me this look of pity like, oh, I'm sorry, but no, you shouldn't have done that in the first place. How about you just let people be? That's where I just get really annoyed with the whole like, I'm just going to harp on you because you're not good at something. It just drives me nuts. I never really brought up that I have dyslexia because I didn't want to act like I was trying to be different, but I ended up posting a long post about it on my Facebook and Instagram pages, and I got a lot of amazing feedback from people who also struggle with it, and they called me brave for coming out with my own struggle. Again, I have lived with this my whole life, so I don't think of it as being brave, but I do see now that I might have a little bit of power to change some things in the way that people think and look at others. What I'm really just trying to get across is just please be kind to everyone you meet. If you see someone struggling and you instantly think they're stupid, just remember that they might be giving it their 100% and that should be dang good enough for the rest of us. And one thing I found out is education is key. So I'm going to leave you off with this um, link so you can find more about dyslexia. Or even if you think you might have a child struggling with it, it's better to know the signs and get them the help that they need sooner rather than later. So if you have any questions or even think, wow, am I dyslexic? I highly recommend going to www.dyslexiida.org to find out more about how you can help others, even in your schools and in your community. Even if you're an adult and have ever felt that you never got the help you needed in school, it is not too late. There is hope for all people with dyslexia. Being different is totally okay. And let's face it, that long list of people I read off, and trust me, it's much longer. Those people are rich and super smart, just in their own way. And just because we might not spell things the right way or be able to read aloud, it doesn't mean that we aren't very creative and super smart. Just keep that in mind.
To anyone who took the time to give me very positive feedback and likes on my Instagram page, thank you guys so much. I've decided that I might start a little dyslexia, I don't know, something. I'm going to try to figure something out, but definitely I am dyslexic and proud. And one last thing, I will never be embarrassed for something that I was born with. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to me talk about that. And oh yeah, while I'm recording this, I forgot that after I post this, we will be on the week of Thanksgiving for America. So I hope you all have a fantastic Thanksgiving making turkeys or maybe even vegan turkeys. I've heard those are in these days. And of course, uh, watching football, hanging out with family and friends. I hope that you all have a fantastic holiday. And if you're not from America, I hope you all have a great week. All right. And now it's time for our Monster of the Week. Since I was hopping across the pond for my episode, I thought I would look into cryptids from the UK. I always wondered if it's just Americans who believe in things as fantastical as Bigfoot and the Chupacabra. Although we all know about Nessie, aka the Loch Ness Monster from Scottish folklore, I wanted to see if I could find anything else, and I am pleased to announce that people in the UK do believe in cryptids just like us here in America. And I probably sounded just as ignorant as I thought I sounded, but we're going to get through this anyway. While I was doing my research, I found the perfect candidate for a monster of the week, and he is known as Springheel Jack. Springheel Jack is described as a humanoid creature who brought fear into the hearts of Londoners during the Victorian era. He has devilish qualities to his face with a pointed nose and ears, has claw-like hands and glowing eyes. He is known mostly for targeting and attacking young women, and apparently he breathes blue and white fire. The first sightings of Springheel Jack happened in the spring of 1837 in London by a businessman who was returning home late from work one night. Story goes that he was walking past a cemetery when suddenly a strange man jumped out with ease over the high fence right in front of his path. There was no attack that night, but the businessman was disturbed by what he saw. The businessman described this man as a muscular man that had what he called devilish features, including large pointed ears and a nose, with protruding, glowing eyes. This creature took one look at the man on the sidewalk, and then he ran from the area and apparently leaped over a rooftop with ease. Many articles that I came across about Springheel Jack said that it had people as scared as Jack the Ripper before there was Jack the Ripper. So that should get you some idea as to the mindset of what it was like to live in London while Springheel Jack was making its rounds and terrorizing people. In February of 1838, a young woman named Jane Alsup claimed that late one night her doorbell rang and when she went to answer the door, a man in a dark cloak was standing there. After she opened the door, he took off his cloak and revealed a tight-fitting clothes that resembled white oil skin. Once she got a good look at his clothes, he then grabbed her and breathed blue and white flames out of his mouth into her face. After this, he started to claw at her clothes and started to shred them with his claw-like hands. She screamed, alerting her sister, who was also home, and the sister was able to scare off the attacker. Only a few days after this first real attack, a similar account was given by an 18-year-old woman named Lucy Scales. 
She said that she was out walking with her sister in Limehouse when out of an alley, a man jumped in their path. He tried to grab them, but they fell back, and then he breathed blue and white flames in their face. They screamed for help, and it brought to the attention of some men who were nearby, and Springheel Jack ran from them. This left Lucy in a fit of hysterics, apparently. A search was made for the man, even had the Scotland Yard involved, but it turned up nothing. Several men were brought in for questioning by the police, but no one was ever convicted. After this, more accounts began to spring up all over suburban London of a devil man attacking women and clawing at their clothes with his claw-like hands. The press gave this strange man a name, Springheel Jack, and it began to spread like wildfire. Rumors began to fly of him being everything from a demon to a ghost to just a normal man with extreme athletic ability and speed. These rumors spread throughout the city and in the papers, leaving London in quite a state of panic. People began to claim to see and be attacked by Springheel Jack all over the city. Over time, the claims began to become so outlandish that people started to question if there ever really was a threat to begin with, or if it could have all been made up from the beginning. The story of Springheel Jack began to take on a life of its own, having many plays, novels, and penny dreadfuls written about him throughout the second half of the century. The last confirmed sighting of Springheel Jack was in 1904 in Liverpool, where he apparently was seen jumping down the street before jumping onto a rooftop and was never seen again. Today, people consider him to be more of an urban legend than a real thing. And also, they credit maybe a fit of mass hysteria that happened, pushed by the London papers, of course. But I think it's a really interesting story. I would like everyone to Google a picture of Springheel Jack, as long as you're not driving, because it is the drawings from the Victorian era that are so neat to look at anyways, but he looks so comical to me that he's like a man with a devil face with tight white pants and knee-high black-heeled boots. With a cloak, by the way. And in some pictures, he has he looks like a bat, and he has this really comical handlebar mustache. I also posted a picture of him on my um, Instagram, too, so you could go check that out if you'd like. Although almost everyone considers him an old urban legend, some people still consider him a cryptid and claim that there are still sightings to this day. But real or not, he is one weird monster that I just had to put on my Monster of the Week. believe that I'm now on episode 10. I never thought I would make it this far, but here I am, and that's all thanks to you guys, my awesome listeners. For episode 10 and to celebrate me getting over 1,000 downloads, I can't think of a better location to cover than the Tower of London. When thinking of a brutal time period to live in, I can't think of a much harsher time than the Middle Ages. After all, another name for the Middle Ages is also the Dark Ages. A time of hostile takeovers, murder, plague, and unhealthy living conditions, it's no wonder that this whole area could be haunted. But the Tower of London itself is what this episode is about. The Tower of London is located on the River Thames in central London. The Tower of London today is a museum that has been a tourist attraction since the 19th century. The tower now holds the crown jewels, does many different types of day and nighttime tours, and it does a ceremony of the keys that has been done for the last 700 years at the tower. The Tower of London has quite a dark reputation. 
But what if I told you that the tower was never meant to be a prison at all? The place where beheadings and torture was so frequently done that it struck fear into the hearts of men and women to hear, take them to the tower. And also, did you know that the Tower of London even had its own zoo? And the price of admission was three and a half pence. Free admission if you brought a dog or cat to feed to the lions. When it comes to the London kings and queens, it always shocks me what people would do for power, especially when it comes to their own family. Looking at the history of the London Empire, I would say the closer you were to the family of the crown, the more in danger you were. So much has happened at the Tower of London to ensure power and control. I ran into a few problems while I was trying to cover the Tower of London, not because of the Tower of London history, but because of the history of the royal families at the time were so confusing to me. So I jumped to the man who ordered the Tower of London to be built. Most famously known as William the Conqueror, or also known as William the Bastard, William was the Duke of Normandy, and he was also a distant cousin to the King of England, Edward the Confessor. When Edward passed away on January 5, 1066, he named his brother-in-law Harold Godswin as his successor. William did not take well to this news because William allegedly said that when Edward was visiting France in 1051, Edward promised to make William the King of England after Edward passed away, due to Edward being childless. In this alleged deal, even Harold was said to be okay with this plan, but in 1066, when Edward gave the crown to Harold on his deathbed, William saw this as a betrayal to the promise. So when this happened, William decided it was time to take over the country that he thought was rightfully his. William's army invaded London in September 1066. On October 14th, during the Battle of Hastings, William's army defeated Harold's army and also killing the King of England, Harold himself. By Christmas of 1066, William was crowned King of England. This was the first time in history an outsider was on the throne. And because of this, William felt he needed to make a grand statement to London. Let them know that he was in charge and he was not to be messed with. He also wanted a lavish palace for his new reign. He also needed a fortress to stay safe just in case a rebellion ever happened. He decided to build a lavish palace that is located on the north bank of the River Thames in central London. This location was picked to strategically control the waterways for trade routes. The first part of the tower was called the White Tower. He founded the castle after he was crowned king in 1066. It began construction in 1078 and was completed by 1100 during the rule of King William II. The castle took over 20 years to build. Gundolf Rochester was the designer. He was a Norman bishop who had been credited with overseeing many important sites in London's history. The White Tower was made up of white limestone. It was designed as a battlement to keep the king safe inside it. The walls were 90 feet tall and 15 feet thick. It was a massive structure, and the people of London had never seen anything like it. It towered over the city with one clear message, this is power and you are nothing. Soon the tower would be more than just a palace. It was about to become a prison. Once King Henry I took to the throne in 1100 after the assassination of his brother William II, one of his first acts was to order the arrest of Ranulf Flamben, the Bishop of Durham. He was charged with sinemy, which is the act of selling administrative properties in the church for money, but he was also the first prisoner to escape. 
After this, many more expansions to the castle and grounds were made. A new tower named the Wardrobe Tower was completed in 1199, and it was used to hold the crown jewels and the royal garments. A bell tower was added and completed in 1210. The bell tower was used for emergencies such as fires and an impeding attack. When Edward I took over power in 1272, he began a very expensive war campaign, and it turned into him being obsessed with money. Despite not using the tower as a main residence, Edward added many more towers to the castle as well as a new wall to fortify the inside walls. He enlarged the moat as well. He also needed a place to keep people that he wanted to imprison who he believed responsible for counterfeiting his country's money. He also wanted a place that he could run to if he had to to be safe just in case a revolt ever took place because he was not a very popular king. He was enraged about all the counterfeiting coins that were being used in his kingdom, saturating the market. He wanted something to be done, and he needed someone to blame. He ordered the royal mint to be brought inside the walls of the Tower of London, and then he decided to blame the Jews for most of what was called then coin clipping. In November 1278, Edward ordered all Jewish people to be rounded up and brought to the tower. For every one Christian hung for coin clipping, ten Jews were hung for this crime. This was the worst Jewish massacre in British history. He also wanted complete control over the country's currency, so he had the Royal Mint brought inside the walls of the Tower of London, calling it the Tower Mint. This made it much easier for him to keep an eye on all the money coming and going. It controlled the supply of the nation's money. He also believed this would scare off people from trying to do counterfeiting in the first place. And a poll tax set up by the Lord Chancellor Simon Sudbury was the last straw for the presence of London. The King of England at this time was a 14-year-old boy named Richard II, and lucky for him, he was not at the Tower the day this happened. What was known as the Peasants' Revolt happened in June. A big mob went through the whole town of London, killing anyone who was in league with the government and piled their bodies in the streets. They burned every government building they came across and then set their sights on the Tower of London. The mob invaded the tower on June 14th and dragged Simon and his conspirators out of the chapel where they were hiding and praying for safety. They beheaded him and his followers and put his head on a spike on what is known as Traitor's Gate. Because the king was only a boy at the time, the blame fell on Simon as he was more or less calling the shots until the king got older. But after the peasants' revolt, the king rode out to talk to the peasants and calm down the rebellion. And I think that's pretty brave for a young boy to do, even though he was a king. Another famous murder was that of the tale of the two princes. It is unsolved to this day, and they have been seen in spirit form all over the property, so I will get to them in a little bit. Many famous prisoners were kept and died at the Tower of London. Just over 400 people were executed at the Tower, and several famous and brutal murders happened here as well. All executions took place at what is called Tower Hill. It was a place that was north of the tower that allowed the guards to control the crowds who also gathered to watch. And as weird as it is to say, if you were rich and a high-profile prisoner, then you got a crowd to watch your beheading. If you were a poor person, you just got hung in the courtyard. Many high-profile beheadings did happen at the Tower Hill. I will give you a quick list of just some of the high-profile executions because I will give you a little backstory for some of them because they are in the ghost section. William Hastings, Anne Berlin, Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury, Catherine Howard, Jane Berlin, Lady Jane Grey, and Guy Fawkes, who I talked about in my Halloween episode, so you should go check that out. I have a whole history on him. 
Torture is always connected with the tower, but it is overestimated by quite a bit. It was thought that the reputation came from the tower as a way to try to scare off the commoners from wanting to rebel. According to the records, only about 48 people were actually tortured at the tower between 1540 and 1640. The royal families also housed many exotic pets at the tower. This began when King Henry III was presented with three lions in 1235 as a gift. The collection grew into a full-on menagerie. They had over 60 different species of animals with a total of 280 animals. With nowhere good for these animals to live, they began to create cages for them in the courtyard of the tower. Once when they were excavating a moat in the 1830s, they found the skeletons and skulls of one leopard, 19 dogs, and two Barbary lions. Barbary lions are now extinct in the wild, but fun fact, you can see two statues of them in Trafalgar Square in London. The menagerie even once housed a polar bear that had a long chain around one of its back feet so that he could swim in the river and fish. They also had an African elephant. Sadly, these animals were not cared for properly, as you could probably imagine. The tower began to see a way to make money for people to come and see their animals. Like I said at the top of the show, it was three and a half pence to enter, but it was free if you brought a dog or cat to feed to the lions, which I think is really disturbing. I can't believe people used to do that. I have a dog and cat at my house, and I just could never imagine that. After one too many times of the animals escaping to wreak havoc on the town, and too many tourists were attacked while visiting the zoo, in 1835, all the animals were moved from the tower to Regent's Park, where a new area became the London Zoo, and they were much better cared for from then on. But at the tower today, they have statues to pay homage to those animals and the past menagerie. The Tower of London did play an important role in the First and Second World Wars as well. In World War I, they used the tower as a place to train recruits and used the now-filled-in moat for training sessions. Also during World War I, 11 spies were executed at the tower for being found guilty of being enemies of the state. During World War II, it was used to guard a Nazi prisoner of war, Rudolf Hees. During World War II, the moat was used as a garden to try to get the people to grow their own food for the war effort. The tower was also bombed by the Nazis, and it destroyed a large section of the Mint and the old hospital block. After World War II, the tower became a tourist attraction once again, and it has brought thousands of people every year to see the rich history and hear the stories of this amazing and beautiful castle. From its sprawling abbeys with high ceilings to its stained glass windows from the Middle Ages, one thing the tower does not hold back on is the fact that this place is definitely haunted. The ghost stories to come out of the Tower of London range from sad and spooky to downright terrifying. The ghosts of many historical prisoners have been seen all over the castle grounds and within the chambers of the towers. The more famous ghost sightings include that of Queen Anne Boleyn, Guy Fawkes, Lady Jane Grey, the two princes, and Henry VI. Prisoners that are less famous are also seen there as well. Some have acted more like residual hauntings while others seem to be more intelligent. The most famous of these hauntings at the tower is the ghost of Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn was the second wife to King Henry V, and she was beheaded for treason after she could not produce a male heir for Henry. People have claimed to see her spirit walking the grounds of the tower with her head under her arm. 
She is also seen looking out a window of the room she was held in until her execution date. Within St. John's Chapel, there are reports of shadow figures moving in between the pews and also things being moved on their own. You can also get a smell of perfume from the infamous lady in white that resides here at the tower. She has also been seen in the windows as if she is peering down on the guests below. No one knows exactly who this lady in white is, but she makes her presence known with her strong perfume. Some people have been said to gag on it because it was so strong smelling. Henry VI's ghost has been seen at the Wakefield Tower. Henry VI was imprisoned in the tower by the House of York, and the initial reports claim that Henry died of an illness while being held in the tower on May 21, 1471. Soon after this, Richard of York's son, Edward, took the throne and total control of England. But the real story of Henry VI's death is much more tragic than just an illness. After Henry was imprisoned in the tower, there was a call for his assassination, and Henry was stabbed to death while he was kneeling in prayer in the Wakefield Tower. People have claimed to see his ghost either kneeling in the exact spot or pacing around the spot that he was killed. When people approach him, he just disappears into thin air. It is said the best chance to spot his ghost is on the anniversary of his death, when the clock strikes midnight. On the last stroke of midnight, he then disappears. The two most active child ghosts can be found in what is called the Bloody Tower. Two young boys have been seen dressed in white nightshirts, playing on the stairs and on the battlements. Tour guides and tourists alike have heard children running and laughing down the halls and on the grounds. The two children ghosts are believed to be that of the famously tragic and true story called the Tale of the Two Princes. When Richard III took over as King of England in 1483, he imprisoned his two nephews, Edward V and Edward's brother Richard the Duke of York. At first, the boys were allowed to play in the castle and on the castle grounds. The king acted as though he did not imprison them but he had them there for their own safety and protection due to wars and death threats that were happening during this time period. Slowly, the boys were seen less and less, and by the end of the year, the two boys disappeared completely without a trace. It is thought that the two boys were murdered to keep them away from claiming the throne when they got older. In 1675, skeletons of two children were found buried in the Bloody Tower staircase, and King Charles II ordered a proper royal burial for the remains found. Even with finding the skeletons under the staircase, the case is still unsolved and it is still a big mystery to this day. If that was the skeletal remains of the two princes, it sure makes sense why the boys would still be haunting the Bloody Tower today. After reading this haunting tale, I can think of no other residual haunting more frightening to witness than that of the botched execution of Margaret de la Pole the Countess of Salisbury. She was brought to the tower with charges of being an enemy of the state after her own son was the cardinal and he denounced Henry VIII as head of the Church of England. The cardinal did this while he was safely in France and that left the king to take out his rage on his mother Margaret who was still in London. On the day of her set execution, she was brought to the Tower Hill and she refused to kneel at the chopping block when told to. Her famous last words were when she was told to kneel is, quote, so should traitors do and I am none. After these words, she stood there for a few seconds, but then when the executioner raised his axe, 
She full-on panicked and tried to run for it. He began hacking at her as she ran around the scaffold. Finally, he had enough and pushed her to the ground and hacked at her body until she was dead. There were about 150 witnesses to this disturbing event. It was said that today, you can hear screams of Margaret as she runs away from her killer, and some visitors have claimed that they have witnessed the whole thing as a residual reenactment play out right in front of their eyes before the scene vanishes into thin air. Talk about disturbing. I mean, could you imagine that? You're just walking around, checking out all the historical things, and then that just happens. That would be insane. Inside the White Tower, when visitors and tour guides alike walk past King Henry VIII's armor, they are said to feel a crushing sensation on their body, as if something invisible is pressing in on them from all angles. They have to leave the tower for the feeling to pass. Also, guards that are on night watch have reported being physically pushed, scratched, and had things thrown at them. One of the more frightening stories is one night a guard was doing his rounds when he was covered from behind with a heavy cloak and he was being strangled. Once he was able to get free from his attacker, he looked around to find that the room was completely empty. Another guard reported that he stood in the White Tower to rest his legs for a little bit, and he heard someone say from behind him, there's only you and I here now, and when he searched the whole building, no one was found. Lady Jane Grey and her husband, Guilford Dudley, have been seen in the tower as well. Lady Jane Grey was somehow convinced by her family that the crown should be her rightfully hers, so she tried to take it over the Queen Mary I. But when Queen Mary I was crowned, she sentenced Lady Jane and her husband, Guilford, to death for treason. Lady Jane was only 16 years old when she died, and her ghost can be seen in her old cell crying late into the night. She can also be seen walking down the hall as if she is making her last walk to her death. Today, the Queen's House at the Tower of London is where the governor of the tower and his family live, but it was used as a prison for some of the high-class prisoners during the Middle Ages. Lady Arbella and Anne Berlin have both been seen in the Queen's house. Lady Arbella was brought to the tower with her husband, William Seymour, for upsetting King James I. See what I mean about being the closer to the main hub of the family, the more in danger you are? Everyone who dared said anything about their brothers, sisters, or even relations were, like, doomed to be executed. It's so weird. Power will make one do crazy things, apparently, and I'm glad I don't know that feeling. Anyway, they were both brought to the tower because they upset King James I, but the two managed to escape, but Arbella's ship was intercepted, and she was brought back to the tower. Her husband ended up making it and escaped to Flanders. When she came back to the tower, she refused to eat and starved herself to death in 1651. When the governor lived at the Queen's house from 1994 to 2006, that governor reported that his wife was violently pushed by an unseen force. It pushed her all the way out of a room and into the hallway. They think it might have been the angry spirit of Lady Arbella. Crying can also be heard in the Queen's house as well. Disembodied voices, cold spots, and of course shadow figures are reported all over the castle. But then again, it is a castle and it's very drafty, so I do understand how there could be cold spots everywhere in a castle like that. However, the sound of shuffling feet, footsteps in the corridor, and doors closing on their own do get me to lead a little more toward the paranormal for a few cold spots. It seems that the spirits of the animals kept at the Royal Menagerie might be hanging around as well. Visitors and just passers-by have reported hearing lion roars and monkeys crying from within the walls as if they are still there. The most scary story is about a ghost animal that comes from the Martin Tower. The Martin Tower was used today to hold the crown jewels, and it is under guard 24-7. 
One night, a soldier was on duty, and he claimed to see smoke or a mist coming from under the door. Afraid of a fire, he went to investigate, and as he got closer, he watched the smoke gather into a form of a huge gray bear. The guard got so scared that he fell back, and at first, and the bear charged him. And then when it went after him, he went to stab it with his bayonet. And he stabbed it. It disappeared. But his bayonet went right through the wall. And allegedly, it took three men to pull it out of the wall because it went in so far. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode of History and Mystery. I certainly learned a lot about the tower that I didn't know doing this episode, and I hope that you guys learned a lot too. I find that history can be really fun, especially when you add a creepy factor to it. Because a lot of this history was so new to me, I feel like I need to name some sources. I got so many sources. Mostly I used Wikipedia, but for the history parts, I ended up mostly actually using the actual Tower of London website itself, which you can go to to find out. All the information about their guided tours, self-guided tours, and of course, any of their lectures that they have. They also do a ton of uh, really cool events all year round. It looks like they're having a really fun Christmas event coming up, so you'll definitely want to check that out if you have time. And if you're ever in London, definitely go to thetowerofLondon.com to find out all your information there. When it comes to the ghost stories I've discovered, I'd like to thank thelineup.com, also bt.com for the six spookiest Tower of London ghost stories, I also have sources from the Grange Hotels and also hauntedrooms.co.uk. So thank you guys so much. You guys are all perfect sources and I love finding all the fun information from you guys. I hope that everybody has a fantastic two weeks. Don't forget to check out my Facebook page and Twitter pages under History and Mystery. Add me on Instagram and my Patreon page. You can check that out as well. I will have all those links down below. Don't forget to check out dyslexia.org. And I will see you guys all next time. I hope you have a great week. Bye.